So um, to start my talk, I'm going to put a new decoration on our altar, um, which is a sugar skull from the Day of the Dead. I don't know if some of you in, live in San Francisco have seen these really beautiful and pretty things, and maybe I'll put it at the back after the talk, but I'm going to put him or her up here um, to be with us and to remind us of the season that we're in. And I'll be talking a little bit about sort of the meaning of this at, toward the end of the talk that I'm giving. Um, but it's also maybe I'm going to speak about truthfulness and truth. And not all truth is literal. Some truth is arrived at symbolically or through intuition or images. Um, so the skull is there also to remind us of that. It's a candy um, and very pretty. Um, so truthfulness I'll begin with a uh, New Yorker cartoon um, which is here it's a veterinarian uh, with there's a uh, actually there's a dog sitting on the steel table looking kind of unhappy and the veterinarian is uh, pointing to an x-ray up on the wall and telling two concerned looking adults he appears to have eaten some homework <laughs> so the x-ray will tell <laughs> anyway for um in a way to give a talk about truthfulness um feels almost extra since you all have been practicing in a sense truthfulness since you came here a kind of living truthfulness uh, of attending to the moment, to what's actually happening, showing up for what's true for each of you internally to the best of your ability. So um, I didn't really contemplate not giving a talk at all, but um, I think that you all actually uh, know or each of you could speak um, or even just show through your beingness this parami of truthfulness because you have kind of been attacking it for some time here. Um, so you already know uh, something about truthfulness from your practice. At the same time, I will also try to speak to you uh, of, of it. Um, one part of the truthfulness that you're feeling is a, tr- is a kind of truthfulness that you arrive at in silence and in this kind of privacy of your own experience. I have a friend who does uh, carpentry sometimes at my house who's also a meditator, and he says one of the things that he likes about retreats is that uh, he finds this kind of sense of truth when he doesn't have to be somebody saying something all the time. Um, That there's a kind of uh, way that we can kind of be with ourselves when we don't have to represent ourselves quite so much to other people. So I um, also am a little envious of you for that since I now have to speak. (laughs) So this retreat about the paramitas, um, just to give a little sense of where it fits in the Buddhist tradition, the paramitas are very much uh, really emphasized in the Mahayana teachings and the teachings where uh, the practitioner aspires to Buddhahood, to full enlightenment. They are a little bit less, um, they're easy to find within the Theravadan tradition, which is one of the principal streams here. Um, Mostly the Buddha spoke about 
you know, intention and right speech and morality and many things uh, that end up becoming paramitas just as uh, practices without assembling them into this kind of list. The place where in our tradition the uh, paramis show up is in the Jataka tales, as I think Jack spoke of. Um, the time when the Buddha-to-be was developing through all these millions of Mahakalpas, uh, just working on perfecting and culminating his powers of mind, his powers of equanimity and kindness and all of that, so that he would be able to become a Buddha, so that his, his uh, enlightenment would be strong enough that it would last until now, which it has done, uh, based on this uh, super dedication that he had. And many of the Jatakas are a little bit like children's stories, or they're symbolic or fairy tale-like when the Buddha-to-be was an animal. And I looked up uh, some of the times when truthfulness uh, was in a, in a Jataka. But as Jack reminded me this morning, and I heard many times during my practice uh, at Spirit Rock and at Insight Meditation Society, that the Buddha of our eon, of our time, truthfulness was his main parami. It was the one thing that he never screwed up uh, in all his lives. That there were times when maybe he was less than kind, or he was arrogant, or he was this or that during his long development, but he held truthfulness as his kind of like primary practice. And maybe that's why we are doing mindfulness as our practice, because he found his way to enlightenment through the truth of the moment. Who knows? I mean, there may be other ways that, in other teachings that uh, will appear in other eons when other Buddhas develop other paramis, because that's also been uh, said in the legends. So if you feel like you've told a few lies in this life, don't feel like you're disqualified because you've screwed up because it, the next Buddhas will have other paramis as their forte. So <laughs> this one's already been ruled out for most of us, I think. <laughs> anyway, one of the stories was when the Buddha-to-be was living as a sort of some kind of a catfish in a pond with a lot of other uh, catfish, and he was the biggest one. He usually is like easy to find him because he's the king of the deer or the birds or something. So he was this fish. And there was a drought and the lake kind of dried up and the crows were coming down and eating all the fish out of the lake. And um, he came up to the surface of the mud and he said, um, he used his truthfulness in a really interesting way. He said, "Um, in my entire life in this pond, I haven't eaten any of the other fish. Like all the other fish are eating each other except me and I found another way to eat. Um, So I've been gentle, I've been kind, and that's been my practice as long as I've been through this life. And therefore, rain God, rain. Because the the power of my saying this, that it's it's absolutely true. So by saying it, as if commanding a servant, he commanded the rain God to rain. And it rained, and after this act of truth, then this large fish died, and as the story goes, he went to what he deserved. He went to his next life. So I think this is an interesting uh, way of thinking about truthfulness and the power of truthful speech. Um, there's something cultural going on, I think, in this story, like, or, either, or the sense of the way that this truthfulness works has been preserved in Southeast Asia. When I was a nun in Rangoon, uh, they brought a Sayadaw to where I was um, practicing. He was from another temple, and he had a little bit of a different practice. And one of the things that he did was he was supposedly able to perform healings by bringing people into his presence and by saying, 
Do you believe that every time I wash my face, I recollect the virtues of the Buddha? And do you believe that never since I put on my monk's robes have I regretted it even for an instant? Um, Because those two things are true, and I say them, and if you believe them, then the power of healing can come, uh, you know, through me to you. Um, And it, I guess it worked, it super activated placebo effect, we might think, or something. (laughs) (laughs) But just thinking, like, how these uh, cultural practices in this story enshrine uh, the power of, of the word or the power of our own word and what it means to be kind of a person of our word or a person of integrity. And I think that there's a way of saying, like that in the fish story, it's like the power of the word is able to move the elements, the very elements of, the, of nature to respond. Um, and I thought about, well, is there any way that we think about this? Um, what about truthfulness that can move mountains? So I'll read you a quote that I think is sort of like the way the fish spoke that has something similar. Um, something from Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King said of himself, when he dies, I'd like someone to mention on that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others, to clothe those who were naked, to visit those in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. So you can see and feel that, um, I mean, I'm not him, so... You know, it doesn't come through the same way, but that was his practice. And by his personal example and the power of his seeing and the power of his own internal practice, he was really able to move a lot of mountains. And after he spoke some of these words of truth, he also died and went to what he preserved, what, to what he deserved. So last night, um, Philip spoke about patience and persistence in the outer sense and in the inner sense, and I'm going to slightly follow that pattern, um, talk a little bit about truthfulness in our expression in life and in our expression in practice, Um, and also then as according to the Tibetan schema in the secret, um, in the secret sense at the end, outer, inner, and secret, and what they say, the essence, uh, outer being maybe our ordinary life and behavior, inner being the kind of practice that we're doing here and Secret being the kind of intuitive sense that can grow from practicing both of these other levels. So in both of these examples of speech, what the person or the fish is speaking about is something about the way that they live. Um, Something about their own integrity. Something about the way that they practice uh, some version of parami. About being wholehearted about kindness, um, about living a very dedicated life. And I think for us in our lives, one of the places that we find this um, parami enacted very much, the place where the truthfulness or sacha parami is described in a Zen monastery is through the work that we do. So I want to talk a little bit about work. say in our work meditation, we can learn a whole lot about our relationship to a job or a task that's outside us. We can see uh, whether we have joy in the way that we focus on it, whether we do it uh, well, whether we feel like we're fulfilling a commitment, whether we understand sort of the need for us to be doing this to keep the whole place going, or do we feel like somehow, the way I used to feel when I was a little kid and I thought my mother 
had had children solely in order that she would never have to go pick up her, never have to go get her purse from upstairs. <laughs> now that I'm an adult, I know there was a lot more work that she was doing to kind of keep me going. But how do we feel <laughs> in our work here? Um, and how do we feel in the work of our life? Do we feel like a participant in the world? Do we feel like we're kind of giving something that's necessary or filling some kind of role in society that uh, we can be wholehearted about or not? Or do, is our work a place of more despair and separation um, or lack of commitment or lack of honesty? Sometimes, uh, we, I used to teach some retreats in New York City, and um, sometimes there are people who overdid their yogi job, and I don't know if any of you do that. Um, there was one lady named, I, I won't say her name, but um, when she used to clean the stove, it was kind of like, you know, something that, uh, it, we did the retreats in someone's house, and we had to sort of ethically refrain from asking this person to clean the kitchen because she would spend two hours, and it would look as if, you know, some amazing, like, divinity had come down and scraped every every burned scrap off the burners everything looked like it was new again but it wasn't really so good for her because what she was doing was she was kind of indulging an old habit a very conditioned habit uh, from her life and using it as a way to kind of not be with herself so we always would say like we're really tempted to have so and so clean the stove but we better put so and so other to do it because uh, it was kind of impossible for her to restrain herself So within this sense of being like a person of integrity or a person of commitment, uh, when do we go beyond into a sense from being, you know, sort of perfect or full in our behavior to being someone who is either trying trying too hard, trying too little, something like this. There's a sense of balance in this parami of truthfulness that requires a certain amount of clear seeing, a certain amount of experimentation, and a certain amount of actual internal understanding of ourselves to see what our true motivations might be rather than what we tell ourselves about how we're participating in life or in our work. And it's a practice. Um, There are times when we might really need to push to finish a project and we kind of leave ourselves behind and then, you know, at the end of the project there's all these coffee cups around and, you know, you haven't eaten right and stuff like that. And I think it's okay once in a while, but if you do it too much at the expense of things like your health or your relationships, it's a good thing to look into. What are we doing it for? Um, who or what are we serving with all of this kind of dedication? Another very obvious area of looking uh, at truthfulness or um, commitment or integrity is uh, in our speech or in the words that we give to the world. another place where we need to look at what our motivations are when we speak. And um, it's kind of hard because we speak quickly usually and a lot of times afterwards we sort of wish that we hadn't said that or sent, sent that email. Um, <laughs> I think we've all learned a little bit about email communication. <laughs> I remember that when I first got email, um, I used to have a lot of fights with people over email. That has diminished greatly. Now that I learn also that it's like it being such a sort of cold medium. You have to really make sure that everything is said so tenderly. It's actually kind of a nice exercise if you want to get something across to figure out how to say it so the person on the other end doesn't kind of have their, you know, sort of their eyebrows singed off <laughs> or think that that's what's happening sometimes. 
So when we speak, I'm just going to give a few examples. I'm not going to give a full sort of exposition about speech, but um, what, are we, what are we speaking for? What are we speaking about when um, my friend said to be somebody saying something? Like, what kind of somebody are we? Or what, what is our speech serving? Are we trying to make ourselves look better um, or wiser than we are or wiser than we feel? Um, are we trying to kind of get someone on our side and isolate someone else? Are we um, being kind of critical to gain an advantage? Are we misrepresenting something? Are we trying to get away with something? Are we making things more convenient for ourselves? I think we all know kind of what this can feel like. Or are we a little bit um, less than caring, less than present with the person that we're talking to? Um, Speech also includes listening to people and how closely do we listen or how much do we want to talk? Um, Also, do we kind of clam up out of being afraid? Are we afraid to speak our peace because we feel unworthy? All of these things are things that we aren't really practicing right now. I'm just kind of trying to sketch a little bit of the terrain of um, speech as a practice of also finding our integrity. Sometimes it may be necessary to criticize a person or a situation to kind of save someone else or to use discernment about um, a message or a product. I was reading an editorial in the New York Times Sunday magazine a few weeks ago about how uh, the Verizon cell phone service is kind of saying that trying to use women's empowerment as a way of selling uh, their their cell phone network. And there's all these pictures of women and stuff and connecting and stuff like that. And there's absolutely, it's just saying like the air carries women's messages and stuff like that. And you look underneath it and there's nothing there. <laughs> it's just they're trying to sell a cell phone. Um, or um, there are plenty of other, you know, political and ideological campaigns that try to kind of snare you in in various ways using uh, things that we value to promote something else when certain, you know, political acts might be called, you know, one thing and they really are about something else, you know. I'm not going to be political, though, because that's dangerous. Um, One example of uh, misrepresentation in speech is I have started to make a little website because I'm teaching now and I want to have a calendar and stuff and I put my little tendril out into the world. It sort of feels funny like to have this thing. Am I advertising myself? Am I making, I'm just making it easier for myself also so people can find my schedule so that I can just send them there instead of having to, you know, communicate personally with everyone. It's still in the process of being mounted. But one of the things on this website was is to have a blog, so... I started, I wrote one thing. And every single, at first it felt like I'm like trumpeting myself. Then I realized, no, it's shouting into the void. No one's going to read this. And now I think 12 responses have come in and every single one of them has to do with hard-ons. Honestly, it's like (laughs) Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, (laughs) you know, it's like, and some of them have bothered to say like, wow, what you say is really intriguing. It's very rare to find such astute thinking on the web. Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, you know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like, at this point, I'm, I'm kind of not expecting anyone. To, I'm not even, I don't even want you guys to go on that, but it's like, <laughs> some of them don't bother to say anything. They just have the direct, you know, pharma, pharmacy online uh, link there. <laughs> response to your blog awaiting your comment. <laughs> Abe Lincoln said, 
How many legs does a sheep have if you call its tail a leg? <laughs> Anyone thinks five? <laughs> okay, a little more about, here's another one about speech, a story about speech. Um, don't lie to your mom. This is a little present that Jack gave me for the talk. John invited his mother over for dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She had long been suspicious of a relationship between John and the roommate, and this only made her more curious. Over the course of the evening, while watching the two interact, she started to wonder if there was more between the two of them than met the eye. Reading his mom's thoughts, John volunteered, I know what you must be thinking, but I assure you, Carrie and I are just roommates. About a week later, Carrie came to John and said, Ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been unable to find that beautiful silver gravy ladle. You don't suppose she took it, do you, John said. Well, I doubt it, but I'll write her an email just to be sure. So he sat down and wrote, Dear Mother, I'm not saying you did take a gravy ladle from my house, and I'm not saying you didn't take a gravy ladle, but the fact remains that one of them has been missing ever since you were here for dinner. Later in the day, John received an email from his mother which read, Dear Son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie, and I'm not saying that you don't sleep with Carrie. But the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the gravy ladle by now. <laughs> Love, Mom. <laughs> so here we can look at the reasons why uh, we might cover things up with our speech. <laughs> Fear, very often. Um, and lack of a sense of being accepted. I'll close the, artic- the outer part of this about the right speech p- uh, piece with talking about how I spent some time in the British government archives this past summer helping my husband who's doing a research project. He um, is writing a biography of someone who's very interesting and who spent some time being a prosecutor in the post-World War II Uh, trials. They weren't the Nuremberg trials, they were called the minor trials, and they were held all over Europe and even in Burma and different places, Singapore and stuff, and trying to investigate. And um, actually, as I was reading, I was trying to find, they're very poorly organized, so I I doubled my husband's ability to check out different files that some of them hadn't really been looked at much since that time. And there's just all the memos of like, do you have this prisoner in the English zone? You know, we let, we let him go in the Americans. He seems to have disappeared. You know, where's so-and-so? Oh, we thought he was innocent of something else and stuff like that. Or, um, but what seemed to come through in this was that it was a kind of giant attempt uh, to set the record straight. You know, um, I got obsessed with certain cases. Like there was, you know, a bunch of slave laborers who had to be... Um, digging up turnips in the rain, and they asked if they could go sit inside a barn until the rain stopped, and the person, the guard who was taking you know, charge of them just shot the person who asked. And a bunch of people saw it, and at the time they were too afraid to say anything, but afterwards they came to where all these trials were being held. A bunch of people came from this village and said, you know, we saw this, and we don't, we don't know who the, you know, we know who did the shooting, but we don't know who the guy was that they shot, and sometimes they would go and try and dig up some bones and stuff and often they wouldn't even be able to find whoever did it they would have disappeared or changed their name or something like that but it just seemed like people really needed to um, not only speak about what happened but also set straight that it was wrong that you know these things were not right to have happened that 
it was, you know, a, uh, something terrible. So this sense of a need for truth in people uh, when the fear was gone and when the danger was gone and when they felt safe enough to speak that they hadn't uh, been able to speak at the time or do anything, they kind of came forward and there was a forum, uh, you know, somewhat successful, somewhat not. And that's been going on now. It's happening in Cambodia. It has happened in places in Africa where there's an attempt through uh, talking about things or talking things through to say kind of what happened. Vicki Hearn, uh, who's a writer about animals uh, and sort of, a f- or was, she has died since, but she writes, um, the responsibility of the poet, the responsibility of really truly meaning what you say is a terrible responsibility, but it's also a kind of relief to live in that terrible world, since at least it is possible to determine what happened. So the truthiness, truthfulness of our word. Um, And sometimes, I have to say, as a fiction writer, I tell another kind of truth by making up a story. And what what the truth will be that comes through uh, in fiction or in symbol or in some of the ways that we write or we paint often isn't known in advance. It's sort of uh, arrived at through the process. So sometimes speech isn't just uh, representing something factual. Sometimes it tries to reach for something else. Um, And I know that when I write, I don't always know what I'm going to say until I've said it. And I actually don't know what I'll see in what I've done until I've done it. And that's kind of what makes it really exciting, but also makes it uh, terrifying too giving some room for the arts in this sense of truth, that there are kind of other kinds of truth than just only, you know, saying something straight or literal. So now we're going to move a little bit more inward and talk about some of the speech that goes on inside our minds, like our internal verbalization or the inner level of our thoughts. Um, Last night, Philip talked about how uh, the Buddha had a voice that lied to the Buddha and said, you're not worthy of becoming um, free. You're not worthy of becoming a Buddha. You should be doing something other than this. And in a sense, I think we can all identify with that. And a big piece of his victory was being able to set aside that voice and go beyond it. And I interpret the earth-touching mudra also in a way to say that he went to another level. It's like he went down under the level of the the thoughts in his mind to a different kind of reality, sometimes um, just anchoring in the body, um, just having something that we know we were distracted from when we were thinking and something that we can come back to gives us a sense of sort of the relativity of this whole world of thought. Um, that's why we try to emphasize the pause when you recognize that you're thinking, when you suddenly realize, oh, I've been thinking. It's like you're off from somewhere. You're in a different position vis-a-vis your thoughts. You're not automatically absorbed into all of them. You actually can take a stand somewhere else in another kind of reality is kind of touching the earth there. And you get a choice about how you're going to relate to those thoughts at some level. Um, We've probably all had the experience by now of Uh, having a sort of thought balloon slightly pop. It's like, oh, you know, I thought I was, you know, you're in this kind of weird dreamlike state where you think you're at home talking to someone or, you know, looking in your fridge or thinking about something that you didn't do and then you suddenly realize you're here instead. And it's like, what was that? (laughs) What happened? 
there's a lot of, um, there's some philosophical debate about the, uh, the nature of this voice that came to the Buddha because it, Mara revisited the Buddha several times after the Buddha's supposed enlightenment. And there was one, you know, several, he told him not to teach. He said, you know, well, no one's going to understand. Um, and he also, uh, near the end of his life, told him to just go ahead and die. So like, it's, it's a, you've done enough already. You've taught a lot. Why don't you just die? <laughs> And the Buddha's response each time was like, I see you, I see you, Mara, I know, I know what you are. You know, I, I see through you. Um, I see that you're just a thought. Um, but Bhikkhu Bodhi actually thinks that it was an entity because if the Buddha was fully enlightened, how could he have self-doubt? So that's a question for all of us. Like maybe we're really Buddhas and we just happen to have Mara visiting us. Who knows? <laughs> we just, we've bought into it. Yeah, the Buddha... Buddha disguise. But I told this to a friend of mine recently who was having a lot of issues with self-esteem and I said, why don't you just say it's Mara? And it really was a help to her. So I offer this to you to just call it Mara when that voice tries to drag you down and say, you know, my life has been nothing but mistakes or I shouldn't have done this or I shouldn't have done that. Um, When we feel haunted by things that uh, seem diminishing to us and make us forget that the paramis belong to us and they are a rightful expression. Seeing through Mara um, also means seeing through the nature of what thinking is and the nature of our story, our narrative. Um, There's a new book out um, called The Buddha's Brain where this is very clearly described physiologically or in terms of brain science. It's like the way it's understood now, our brain kind of makes up a picture, a kind of a composite, takes all this incoming sense data and mixes it up with a little bit of memory and kind of glues it together and calls it you. Um, You know, uh, it makes it seem to be solid. And it's not really the case. Like, when they say if you sit there, I went to the Mind and Life conference where His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks with various neuroscientists and they talk about what what is going on when someone sees a golden retriever kind of romping toward them on the grass and all the different kind of neural inputs that go to create this picture uh, of, you know, something like what we remember that it's a dog, we remember that it's friendly, we might even, you know, have had such a dog or we've known one or something like that. And that all becomes part of our experience of seeing this thing coming toward us. Then we give it a name, and then uh, suddenly there's a relationship with it. Maybe we love it, maybe we don't. We have some past conditioning about that. So what is really going on here? I think um, we're starting to learn to unpick a little bit um, our sense of you know, ourselves and quite how tightly uh, together it is. And rather than being scary, it sort of it should be experienced as freeing. It's a little bit scary at times. The Buddha said, you should train yourself like this. When you see a form, you simply see. When you hear a sound, you simply hear. When you smell an aroma, simply smell. Whenever you taste a flavor, simply taste. When you feel a sensation in the body, simply feel. Whenever a thought arises, let it just be a thought. Then you will not exist. And whenever you do not exist, you will not be found in this world, another world, or in between. That is the end of suffering. The end of self-centeredness or the understanding of how we're sort of this natural uh, 
arising of many different things, a kind of series of experiences. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this um, and go into it a little bit more. This is a radically experiential sense of truth. It's not a truth arrived at through logic or abstraction. The Buddha brought us really into this world and this life and our life and this moment. The truth of this moment is the truth that uh, we're talking about. It's not sort of the truth of Plato's cave or the truth of philosophical abstraction. It's really here and now. So it's very easy. It almost doesn't require a lot of intelligence to be here, to feel yourself being present, to hear the sound of my voice, to then see a little bit about how you're receiving it. Um, Interesting, boring, questioning, um, excited, confirming, sort of resonating, whatever it is that internal experience is, that's the material that we are working with. And the truth of this moment shows up again and again and again and again. So if you missed one, there's going to be another one. And our practice is just to show up for this, to show up and be immediate. It's not abstract at all. There was a woman on the first day of the retreat, maybe some of you saw her, she was down in the bookstore, um, and she was sort of very shyly seeing what Spirit Rock was. She was from India, and uh, she said her parents had been meditators, and now she's an account executive or something, so she was checking out Spirit Rock. I brought her up here before the retreat started, She told me her name, and she was from Tamil Nadu, and I didn't really get her name. So just before we parted, and she was very sweet and polite and said she wanted to come back, she said, my name is Abhi, and it means now. And since then, I've been kind of practicing with that, like, my name is now, you know? (laughs) Everybody's name is now. (laughs) So I think um, as... Jack's talk tomorrow will deal a little bit with dispassion, which is an aspect of truthfulness, like the paramitas kind of weave in and out of one another. Um, This very direct observation of body and mind, a kind of empirical, unbiased investigation of phenomena. I hope I'm right that you'll be talking about this. Um, Studying that which appears um, and kind of in an unprejudiced way, even being unprejudiced about the ways that we are prejudiced. Um, That's actually a very important thing to recognize. I was uh, a couple of years ago at Radcliffe on a fellowship to write a novel that I'm writing, and there was another woman scholar there who does work with uh, anti-racism. And without going into her whole method, she said the people who are most successful at uh, getting past their prejudices are the people who can admit them and the people who can recognize kind of where they are and say, like, I'm going to kind of go past that. You know, the people who can let themselves see that there's some kind of blockage or, like, unhappiness in the way that we relate to people of color or Native Americans or queer people of sexual, uh, different sexual orientation than our own, um, to look at it, to recognize and to go on from that and to see the human face and to see the person that's living in that life. Um, It's a form of love, uh, even to be able to admit it. She said people who do yoga are also sort of successful in that, but it's the Buddhist meditators who can really change. I was very proud of us then. (laughs) Yes, that's good. 
She said it's really hard, like, when she goes to, like, police stations and stuff like that, because, like, they deal with so much stuff and they get accused so much that it's almost as if the accusation of being prejudiced rises up and won't let them admit that they are and won't let them even work with it because they're so defensive about, you know, feeling like, well, we're always being accused of this. So she said they always sit, pull their hats down and just, you know, act like they're listening. They stay in the room and then leave as soon as they're finished. And she said very hard to get through um, to them. So why, like I want to say, why do we bother to put up with all of our craziness or all of our mind or all of our pain or all of the ways that it's hard to be human or hard to be with ourselves, the distraction and the um, what are we investigating or what's the reason behind it for this integrity, um, but why this kind of integrity exactly? I used to ask myself this question sometimes. Sylvia Burstein has a wonderful answer in a, her book about the Paramis, which she published in around 2002 or was published for her. To perfect my truthfulness, I need to be able to tolerate seeing clearly all of who I am and all of what is happening. I need to not feel ashamed or afraid. If I pay attention calmly and steadily, my mind will be unbiased and its secrets will reveal themselves to me in an honest, gentle way. The pleasure I'll experience by not hiding from myself will inspire me to create the intimacy of non-judgmental, gentle honesty with everyone. The pleasure I'll experience by not hiding from myself will inspire me to create the intimacy of non-judgmental, gentle honesty with everyone. So we begin here to distinguish and discern the truth of how it feels to be alive and the truth of how it feels to be here. Now, we've removed a lot of external stimuli so that this can become uh, easier for us. It's like we take away everything as much as we can and provide a safe container, an environment for us to start to make these admissions, to see clearly and to... um, be close with ourselves when we have feelings that are unworthy or undesirable or even desirable to be joyous or things that just don't fit with our narrative. So in a way, this practice is a way of telling the truth to ourselves. This is happening right now. This is how I feel right now. This is the truth of this moment for me. And a curious thing starts to happen when we do that is it starts to kind of unpack or the secrets of the mind begin to open up. We find that we can be with certain ways that we are, that we didn't think that we could just be with them, uh, things that would have immediately caused us to act out in the past. Um, This person who I talked about, Mara, you know, her unworthiness and say, just call it Mara, gave me a box of cookies, very nice cookies. And um, I ate two of them, and I thought, maybe I'm going to eat another one. And I thought, you know, I actually think I want it, but I don't have to have it. I can actually stop it, too. It was really interesting, because normally I would have had a bigger struggle, but just from having uh, sat with you guys and sat here the you know relatively smaller number of hours, I had access to being able to just be with the desire and not have it sort of take over. Um, I did bring the cookies up to the teacher room in hopes that others would eat them. (laughs) And I had the joy of sharing also. People seemed to like them, (laughs) which was good. 
Here's um, an anecdote from Ajahn Sundara, who's one of the nuns of the Thai forest lineage. Maybe some of you have met her or studied with her. She has a quite powerful presence and personality. She was once a dancer. She's French. She says, um, Once I remember crossing the courtyard at Amrawati on a hot and sunny afternoon, feeling quite miserable and depressed. I had lost all the passions of my mind. They just didn't seem to be there anymore. There was just a kind of dull state, and I was strongly identifying with it. It was awful. I really thought this mood was what I was, and I could hear myself getting really upset about it. I thought, this is just so hilarious, I I can't bear this, it's impossible. They are turning me into a turnip. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought of as the most pallid, wishy-washy, nothing-looking vegetable. And she goes on to say she, doesn't e- she didn't even know who they were, who were turning her into a turnip. <laughs> so I want to unpack this a little bit here because it's um, this, to make this uh, clarity of distinction. Also, I want to say this talk was quite a collaborative effort. I got a lot of support from all of my colleagues to uh, write it and with suggestions and stories and moral support and love and feeling safe and all of that. So it really helps me be here and give this talk. But... Um, Philip was talking about how um, it's really important to be able to separate the uh, mental state from your reaction to it. Like, you have to be honest about the mental state. So here she is having this mood of dullness. She was in a dull state. And next, um, she was upset about it. And out of the two, it's like you be honest about the first one, about the dullness, and then you also be honest about the reaction. And when you're able to really sort of see that, the sort of double reactivity, then it opens up and it no longer seems to have control of you. What happens is that when you're kind of caught inside it, you feel like it's really you and you have this sense that it's true and valid for all time. And um, our opinions are often like that or our negotiations with our children or our spouses are true and valid for all time, like my feeling about this. Um, but when you can separate the two, there's airspace in between. And you can just see that these are things that are kind of occurring in your mind instead of being like a total encompassing reality. So that's a place that's really interesting to work. And if it's not immediately clear to you um, how it functions, if you don't quite have access to that, um, just sometime when you feel like you're really stuck, see if you can admit to yourself that you're just feeling really stuck. And see if saying, you know, I'm feeling really stuck right now uh, helps at all. Because to me, it often does to say, like, I'm feeling this way right now brings a little bit of extra mindfulness. Or the other day we were sitting here and I was in something. I can't remember. what. Oh, I know. It was a repeated memory of a difficult uh, conversation I'd had. And Mark said, where are you right now? And I'm like, oh, I'm in that again. And, And then all of a sudden it was okay. It was like, okay, so I'm in that again. I'm with it. And the sense of, like, why is this thing back and haunting me again and again? It was like, it's okay, I can just be with it this time. And it hasn't recurred quite as much since then because of the, you know, just a little extra energy of being able to be with it. And it resolved. What actually happened was I saw the way the mind had been obsessed with it. And in, in contact with greater attention, the obsession st- started to dissolve. And it actually sort of went down to a little place in my heart and became some, like, little dispersing particles. It was such a relief. Then it was just a thought, you know, it was no longer kind of had control of me. Like I, what I saw was the emotional 
toxin disappearing and dissolving. Um, so that can happen, sometimes in a clearer way, sometimes in a less sort of clear way. Ajahn Sundara goes on to say that as she, she gives a little story about how she uh, works with the feeling that she had, and she said, I spent many years expecting from life something that it could never give to me. Um, and how are we like that? Like uh, when we're asked, you know, what's going on in your heart right now? Is there peace or not peace? And sometimes it's really hard to say like, no, there's not really peace. Or I don't even really know what's going on in my heart. You know, what I want so much is for there to be peace and I can't, I can't stand it. I can't even let myself know that there's not peace right now. But it's very important to, uh, in this practice to be able to do that. Great tenderness, great compassion is needed to allow sort of this being to manifest as we're going to manifest in the stillness of the sitting. Great gentleness is needed, great safety. Pakchok Rinpoche sent a letter to a Tibetan teacher named Pakchok Rinpoche sent a letter to his students saying, don't think it's bad if you have a negative emotion and good when you have a positive emotion. After all, whether it's positive or negative, it's just an emotion which is impermanent. Notice them and let them be. They will dissolve on their own naturally. This is important to understand in practice. In fact, it's the essential teaching. So it's helpful if we can get sort of right to being with the thing. And if not, sometimes we have to be with and acknowledge that there's a reaction, that there's sort of a second layer aversion on top of the aversion. Like I have some aversion and I also don't like how I'm feeling. So you go up to whichever one is kind of the most obvious and you say hello to it, you bow to it, maybe you thank it even for being there. Try to have some sort of little uh, way, mode of addressing it. Uh, Alanis Morissette said it in a song that maybe some of you know. Thank you, India. Thank you, terror. Thank you, disillusionment. Thank you, frailty. Thank you, consequence. Thank you. Thank you, silence. The whole song is quite beautiful, but it's uh, too long to quote. And I I will tell you it's Alanis Morissette uh, saying thank you, um, lest you request me to post it on the bulletin board. So although we're scared and although we don't really know what we're doing and although a lot of what we're doing is thrashing around and although a lot of the time we're just falling down and getting up again or even just falling down and staying down um, and trying not to run out of the room, (laughs) somehow I think there's something in us that is keeping us here that is kind of the passion for the truth, a kind of spiritual passion that says, yes, I will. I will try to do this. I will fall. I will try again and again. Um, I'll see the same feeling again and again, and I'm going to see what I can do to come to peace with this thing. I think we really want that. We want to be able to be uh, with ourselves and with other people um, as we are, as we really are. So now we're going towards the uh, secret level or the kind of internal level, if you stay with and be with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral things over time, something else begins to emerge. Like, as best we can in this kind of haphazard, random way, we kind of try to stay with the ups and downs of our experience and try to um, come to peace and come to balance and come to presence moment by moment. 
we start to see through our thinking patterns a little bit more. Here is uh, Don Miguel Ruiz from uh, The Four Agreements, a book that was a great bestseller, and I kind of spurned because it was too big of a bestseller, and then I started reading it, and I thought, it's actually interesting. See, writer's envy. <laughs> I've sold 7,000 copies of my book. He's sold 250,000 copies. I'm not reading it. Anyway. <laughs> now I did, and I see why people liked it. <laughs> he says, uh, in just the introduction, he says, there are thousands of agreements you've made with yourself, with other people, with your dream of life, with God, with society, with parents, spouse, and children. But the most important agreements are the ones you made with yourself. You tell yourself who you are, what you feel, what you believe, how to behave, and the result is what you call your personality. If you want to have peace and joy in this life, you have to find the courage to break the agreements that are fear-based and that drain your personal power and integrity. If you want peace and joy in this life, you have to find the courage to break those agreements that are fear-based and drain your personal power. Now, we're suggesting you might try to make an agreement with the paramis here instead of Mara. So um, that's a thought for you guys. Top ten places to live, the paramis. <laughs> I've deplored how magazines all have to have top ten this and that. You know, like I guess they figured that it sells magazines. I used to work for Outside Magazine and write you know, what I thought were like very interesting adventure articles, and now they're just top ten this and that. I'm also like an old, you know, middle-aged lady to them now. and <laughs> No longer a death-defying macho woman explorer. <laughs> I might still be, but anyway, inwardly. So... <laughs> so what Don Miguel means by agreement is like the stuff that we buy into. And a lot of things we buy into almost before we even knew it. You know, we're bought in already, like we're born mortgaged in serfdom. Um, so when the mind latches on to, you know, they're turning me into a turnip, um, what do we do with that? Like we start to see that this is somewhere that maybe we could get the courage to see the truth of that. Sometimes I think there's a certain convenience in thinking that someone else is doing something to me. You know, it's easy to feel um, kind of like you can s sit in a place of pot shots and just blame and there's nothing you have to do where the sort of path of taking a greater responsibility for your inner life means that you kind of have to figure out how to do it and figure out how to absorb it and also feel some pain feel the pain of your own hate um, recognize that it's a mental state but you won't be able to see that it's nothing more than a mental state unless you're actually willing to feel it so that's the hard part that's the price that you have to pay so in the time that we feel what's arising and passing, when we're willing to come to that place of really standing in the truth uh, of this moment, actually the awareness that we bring to the moment starts to give us a sense of choice. It kind of inserts a point uh, of leverage where we have uh, some freedom of movement. We um, see that it's happening in our mind. Over time, as here some of the other nuns have written uh, in the same book, uh, that I read from Ajahn Sundra, this identification that we normally have with experience starts to ease up when there's sufficient strength in our mind to let awareness embrace the feeling. 
without either rejecting it or believing it, without being absorbed into it, uh, what Don Miguel is calling making an agreement. A profound change takes place, not judging, not resisting, not wanting something else, not not wanting this. Moods, feelings, sensations, and struggles are held in awareness. Compassion opens to suffering with the right perspective. We become at ease with what we experience, whether or not they're to our liking. This is a loving heart that can be still, and it's not a saccharine loving heart. It's a very empowered loving heart. As Helen Keller said, uh, even darkness and silence have their mystery. Whatever state I'm in, I learn therein to be content. So now for the skull portion of our show. Um, Here's a little skull up here. Um, One of the truths of our life is that we're going to die. All of us will die. And inside all of our head is not only a lot of thoughts, but also some bones and a skull and a brain. Um, when I was a kid, I used to, I lived in Peru and I was a little bit obsessed with the Incas and stuff because they felt like they were still around in some cases. Like you could find things left from those cultures that had, people think of them as being very ancient, but it was really only about 400 years ago. Like they talk about ancient and it seems like it was 2,000 years ago. It was only n- numerous generations ago that, um, Actually, the population of Peru is only now recovering from all the slaughter and disease that happened. They've reached 21 million. I think they were about 17 when the conquistadors first came. So one of the things that I did when I was small was I visited this burial ground, and I retrieved a skull from it when I was about 10, causing my mother no end of worry about her child's mind. (laughs) I kept it. She tried to throw it out once. I found it in the wastebasket. I got it back. (laughs) but I know it's a woman and I found out soon that it was a woman because our family had this older like uh, German friend who used to come over and like talk to us about stuff and he told me some things about her like he made me look at her teeth and how ground down they were and that she'd been hit on the head severely when she was um, at a certain age and I also was hit by a truck so I had a thing with this person (laughs) who was (laughs) Like, and it was just something like a mystery of who was this person and what was, you know, what is this called death? You know, what lived in this head? I still have it. I still look at it. And the feeling was of like something very mysterious, but also love. And I've only recently been able to name it. Like I can remember how I felt because I was pretty young in relationship with this thing. But it was also like looking at the mystery of life to look at uh, the fact that this person had died and that I still, I had her head, um, there's, in that, cult, in that culture, it's actually uh, considered okay for the mummies to, the mummies used to come out and parade around, like mummies were more to be played with. It. The whole sense of the sacred was actually in looking at and relating to uh, remnants of dead people rather than, anyway, there's all different customs and beliefs about these things. So death actually can be part of what makes our life beautiful. Steve Jobs said to uh, the Stanford graduating class three or four years ago, this is a YouTube that you can find on, uh, what's that thing called? Um, TED. It's like TED's second website, the Technology, Entertainment, and Design. They have a sort of subsidiary, also interesting non-TED thing, but um, Steve Jobs' commencement address at Stanford At 17, he came across a passage that said, if you live each day as if it were your last, someday you will be right. 
(laughs) (laughs) So he says for himself, he looks in the mirror and asks himself about the things that he did today. Would I do these things if this was my last day? And if he says no too many days in a row, then he knows he needs to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've encountered to help me make the big decisions. Because about, uh, let's see, can't read because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering, and when he said this, he was like really preaching to that class. It was really funny. He was like, remembering that you are going to die is the best tool I know. <laughs> To avoid the trap of thinking that you have something to lose, you're already naked. There's no reason not to follow your heart. Uh, June 2005, yeah. So the people you have to lie to own you. The things you have to lie about own you. When your children see you owned, then they are not your children anymore. They're the children of what owns you. So if money owns you, they're the children of money. If, you need, if your need is for, for pretense and illusion owns you, they're the children of pretense and illusion. If your fear of loneliness owns you, they're the children of loneliness. If your fear of the truth owns you, they're the children of the fear of truth. That's heavy. So here we are coming together for our little picnic in the cemetery, pre-Day of the Dead, our little Halloween party retreat acknowledging together uh, the fleetingness of this life that comes and goes. Uh, One day of precious time, again, we've spent. Sometimes looking at the moon, I feel that. Like, here we are, there's the wind, there's this mysterious light in in the sky and the clouds passing over it, and this was another day of my life, and I'm here, my husband is at home. Um, Ow, I miss him, ow. Um, So it's worth it being here. But let's acknowledge it together, that... um, what we're doing is important. Something like a Halloween party here where we've invited all our favorite uh, internal disguises and you know scary monsters and um, looking at them with the light of awareness. Uh, Larry Rosenberg likes to use this. Like, let them all come, invite them all. But at the door, you look under the mask and say, you're my friend, aren't you? Ha-ha, <laughs> 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 I know you. I know you, Mara. It's like we're getting a bunch of friends together and going into the haunted house with a bunch of flashlights and saying boo, turning on the flashlights and seeing if there's anything there. So what we see um, with this light of awareness is kind of something else. It's not definable. It's not uh, confined within the objects. That sense of like being lightly disidentified or seeing the fleetingness or the ephemerality or the thinness of things. It's not that things get wiped out. It's not that there's nothing. It's like there's this experience happening and it's almost like a bandwidth. I think uh, Spring might talk about different realms and stuff. Or here we are in the kind of the human bandwidth. Maybe the other bandwidths are actually pretty close. Longchenpa said, even as things arise, he's a Tibetan thinker, one of my favorites, kind of the Shakespeare of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, beautiful writer, beautiful poet. Even as things arise, they arise naturally holding to their own place. Even as they abide, they abide naturally, holding to their own place. Even as they're freed, they're freed naturally in their own place. 
awareness is unchanging, unbiased. There's no elaboration, unborn. It's funny that when we meet uh, phenomena with unborn awareness in that space of the unborn, we see that phenomena are never quite born either. Like they ne- we never quite depart from the womb of nature. Like things never quite come into being and they never quite go out of being either. Like there's something going on. It's a shimmering kind of feeling. And in the shimmering, things are, seem a lot more workable, a lot more spacious and a lot more free. So with being these, with these uncomfortable things, may the great peace begin to dawn in you where you see um, unbiasedly. I want to conclude with um, a sense of some of the sort of the, what I think of as almost like the mystical side of the paramis, where we can think of the, this huge aspiration that we might have that resonates with us, that we would like all beings not to suffer, that uh, we would like the whole stain of suffering and pain to be removed from the universe. I think if any of us had our way, that, like, and we gave ourselves, you know, we were given the power to do that, we would do that right away. Wouldn't that be one of the first things you'd do for everyone? Like, you know, whether you'd start with other people or yourself, it almost doesn't matter. Like, if you could just get rid of it for everybody, it'd be great. So this is what we aspire to. Um, but that's the relative aspiration, because that's just imaginary. What the absolute uh, application of the paramis is, is doing what's right in front of you. So we might aspire to save all beings, and the absolute way that you act on this is to take a banana slug off the steps of the dining hall, because you know that not, maybe not everyone is mindful enough to not step on that slug. Um, or you sit with yourself, and you feel your joy as completely as you can or you go and do the walking period to enact the um, parami of persistence and patience, even when you don't want to. Um, that's how we bring these qualities into this world, and that is the absolute for us. Like, Because this is the world. This is the world that we have. So I'll finish with one uh, story about parami from this wonderful magazine called The Sun. Am I gorgeous, my child asks, drawing the word out like pulled taffy. Yes, I say, you are. The pink and teal dress is probably made of highly flammable material. Some chemist's approximation of tulle and satin. Pudgy fingers decorated with pink polish trace the sequins on the bodice. I love this. (laughs) A giant pair of bubblegum pink wings flap slowly. Little feet dance in sparkly red slippers. I'm just like a real princess. Yes, I say, you are. Thick blonde hair, blue eyes, rosy cheeks, flawless skin. This child is the American epitome of beauty. This child, my son. He's four years old and prefers to wear dresses. Maybe it's a phase, maybe not. Even as I wonder how I produce such an angelic-looking creature, I wish he would put on some pants and go back to playing with toy tractors. Not because it matters to me, it doesn't but because I'm already hearing in my head the name-calling he'll face in kindergarten. Many adults already seem a bit disturbed by the dresses. Strangers utter awkward apologies when they realize he's not female. This culture wants little boys to dream only of baseball, trucks, and trains. This culture has no room for little boys who want to be gorgeous. He picks up a parasol a neighbor gave him and opens it jauntily over his shoulder. Am I beautiful, he asks. 
I sweep him into my arms and plant a kiss on his cheek. Always. Thanks. So let's sit a little.